You're listening to Alternative Thinking, Both Sides of the Coin, a production of the Canadian Association of Alternative Strategies and Assets, where we explore today's markets and alternative investments from two distinct perspectives. Today we're speaking private lending with two practitioners in the field as they talk to the different types of private lending, aka private debt, aka private yield, and where they see this market going in the COVID and post-COVID eras. James Braun is the president and co-founder of CASA. All opinions expressed during the show by James and our show guests remain their own and should be used for informational and educational purposes only. Find out more about CASA at casa.ca. Welcome. Today is Monday, May 11th, and I'm James Braun with CASA, and this is Alternative Thinking. Today we're speaking with Michael Steep from Steep & Co. Limited and Mohamed Manzur with Morex Capital. Uh, we'll start with introductions. Uh, I'll start with you, Mo. Hi, uh, James. Thanks for having us. Uh, my name is Mohamed Manzur. I go by Mo, and I'm the CEO of Morex Capital Corp. Morex Capital is a MIC, which stands for Mortgage Investment Corporation. Uh, we actually specialize with 100% residential first and second mortgages in the single-family home space. Basically, we are just true equity lenders, and we use a common-sense approach uh, for all our guidelines. That's great. Thanks. Uh, so maybe for background, for my, for my uh, education also, what's the difference maybe between a, a MIC and I know there's a difference between a REIT because that's typically in the equity side, but there's also like private lending funds. And how, how, do, how do they differ uh, between the two? So typically where a MIC stands, uh, we investors pool their money into the fund. And then we, as the MIC operators or managers, we position the funds and deploy it on all residential properties where it comes to uh, REITs. REITs are on a larger scale. They can possibly on any given time have a large exposure to one place. Our typical loan sizes in a MIC are generally no more than million dollar maximum, anywhere okay. from 100,000 to 1 million. And then is that like a certain size of the portfolio if you have like a is that a million dollars if you have a hundred million dollar mic or what, what kind of what kind of rules are behind that? So we have our internal guidelines that no matter hundred, two hundred, or billion dollars, we service the single family homes residential, mm-hmm. and and we don't go in the commercial space. So uh, in that sector, our largest loan we can write is a million dollars. Now there's other mix out there that specialize with commercial side, and they tend to go up anywhere three to five to ten million as needed to be. Uh, into that space, right? And then the amortization periods on these are they like a like like a bank loan, like thirty odd years, or how do you how do you work? So these are typically uh, at, in our make are at least uh, interest only uh, loans, one year terms. Mm. Sometimes we extend them to two years, and depending on the client's payment history and so on and so forth. Uh, but certain mix out there, the larger ones in the commercial space, do have an amortization built into them. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just don't. We just simply are the alternative to the banking for short-term financing uh, for one to two years. Okay. And I have uh, two more questions that are probably on everyone's mind. So what about subprime? And and what, or Maybe with that is what's the motivation for someone to take out a, a one-year loan at? I imagine higher rates than the banks. Like what's uh, what's in it for the for the borrower? 
To be honest, majority of the people, uh, if they are already homeowners over the course of five, 10 years, majority of their money is in their houses. And with the new stress test provided by the government two, three years ago, sorry, two years ago, 2017, I believe it's become more difficult for clients to access their funds. And to get access to their own funds, you need to go to a private resource. That's where we come into play. Even if you're purchasing and you have multiple sources of properties, then the banks are not approving you. So then the alternative is back to us, which is the private sector. Oh, well, cool. That's a good, uh, good alternative for folks. How about you, Mike? Uh, you've been in the real estate lending uh, alternative space for decades. <laughs> Let's hear about your story and what, what you're doing right now. <laughs> I have been in this space for some time. Thank you. Uh, thank you, James. Uh, so uh, my name is Michael Steep. I'm the president of Steep & Co. We are registrants in Ontario and Alberta. We're in Ontario. We're investment fund managers and exempt market dealers. And uh, Steep & Company has been focused in raising capital into short-term, primarily commercial mortgage funds, uh, or I might add mix as well, mortgage investment corporations, uh, since we started in 2007. Uh, prior to starting Steep & Co. in 2007, uh, I worked at the bank, I worked at Trust, I worked at two insurance companies, and starting back in 1990, when I graduated from business school, I, I started working with one of the larger developers here in uh, Toronto area called Tridel, uh, working with them. And in 1990, there was an acute real estate recession taking place in Toronto. That yeah, perfect timing. <laughs> Yeah, perfect timing. <laughs> but it was it's good education. Uh, right. So that's so that's what we've what we've done. And part of my background is to do commercial leasing also, uh, underwrite mortgages, uh, either new home construction or existing and, and all those kinds of uh, real estate related uh, activities, which had me then uh, after leaving um, uh, my last insurance company I was working with starting Steep & Co. And we currently have two offerings. Uh, we have gone to the United States and brought up an existing fund up here to make it available in Canada. And uh, so we have a trust and we have an LP and, and it's called Ultra Short High Income Fund, again, dealing with short-term commercial bridge financing. Oh, cool. And so uh, is it is the are the borrowers in the States, is the U.S. borrowers and you're selling it to Canadian investors or is there a mix or how is yeah, it, it's uh, both of the Canadian funds, the trust or the LP, invest into an existing $400 million mortgage REIT in the state. So it's interesting. It relates to what you said earlier in Canada. So a, um, a REIT in Canada, everybody thinks of it as, as real estate, as, as, as equity. Yeah. yeah. But, but specifically in the states, uh, mix or mortgage entities we talk about in Canada are really mortgage REITs in the States. And there's real significant tax structures to that and benefits, just like there is in Canada with Moe's fund, Mick uh, that he runs, real benefits to being a Mick in Canada as well. So there's tax benefits to both, but they are really distinct that way. And so the US tax benefits, do they translate up to Canada well, or how do you, how do you guys work the structure on that side? Yeah, they do, particularly if you're um, a tax exempt pension plan, um, there's real benefits uh, that, uh, you know, if you're a qualified registered pension plan, uh, you're likely to get all the benefits of the tax treaty that would basically have 
the tax-free REIT structure in the States have all the income flow up here to Canada, including capital gains and not pay tax on it. So that works well. Mm. I might add, it, it, it is related to a MIC as well, which is a, a non-taxed entity, a corporation that then flows out all the income that's fully taxable interest. And if you're not a taxable entity like a pension plan, you don't pay tax on a MIC in Canada either, typically if you're a pension plan. All right. Yeah, because it retains its uh, character as it goes through. And then, yeah, if you're not taxed, then it's... I guess lost right. to the government, but you're tax exempt anyway, so that's that's fine. That's that's nice and uh, slick. On the trust side, to be clear though, there is a fifteen percent withholding tax on the trust side, and and that's really a preferred tax structure. So if you get if there's a fifteen percent withholding tax, it it applies against tax you'd otherwise pay on income that you received up here in Canada, but it's still typically a better structure than a blocker fund structure, which is something you typically have to put in place to bring the income up up from the U.S. Oh, yeah? How does that work? Well, a lot of, uh, and I've worked with some past asset management companies here in Canada that had U.S. offerings, and, and you set up a blocker fund structure. And again, I'm not a tax expert, and I've hired... Yeah, don't worry. We're not going to run out and do I, one, but yeah. Just yeah, I, I have, but my, the legal counsel that I've hired in the U.S. to explain all this, which exists in our offering memorandums, um, you know, essentially it's it's saying that, you know, we don't have to have a blocker fund structure because we don't physically have operations in the U.S., we being Stephen Company, the investment fund manager. Mm-hmm. And so there's a real benefit to being up here in Canada, but having a good trusted partner in the States as it pertains to only having a 15% withholding tax, which can be applied to your Canadian tax under the benefits of the tax treaty. Nice. I don't know if I'm, am I helping or confusing? No, that sounds that's, great. Yeah. Yeah. Because you hear about all these different structures that people use and, and, uh, there's uh, there's a multitude of them, but it's good to hear. So if you have somebody, if you have a, a shop like yours in Canada, they take the U.S. offering, and you're because yeah, you're not doing anything down there. You're able to kind of get it, streamline it and bring it up here without having to worry about a lot of stuff. Yeah, James, there's actually a lot of very specific provisions pertaining mm-hmm. to foreign investors investing in U.S. REITs, mortgage REITs, or otherwise. So about two years ago, with the tax change in the States with Trump, um, if you had a mortgage fund, it was an LP in the States, you've tried to convert that into a REIT. That's a huge uh, process that's taken place in the States because of the tax benefits. But there's real requirements about qualifying as a REIT. But it, from a tax standpoint, it's it's really beneficial, and that's why people have done it. Hmm, cool. And how about your client base? Um, you mentioned institutional investors. Is it pension plans, family offices, high net worth individuals, or what, what kind of breakdown do you have there? Yeah, it's it's all of the above. I mean, it's really just this year that we've we've launched the funds. We're lucky enough mm-hmm. to have a, a couple commitments from a couple pension plans, so that's all good news. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, we we have the trust for our family office clients and and for the IROC distribution network, and it's an eligible investment, and it's and it's for that reason you kind of need that structure if you're going to deal in that space, and uh, and then we have the LP specifically, just to make it simple. Uh, that all the investors are just um, institutional, non-taxed entities. Just it makes the it makes everything easier when it comes to uh, calculating withholding tax or not, as the case would be. Right. Oh yeah, and then I guess the trust that's available for registered plans like RSPs and that, right? Yes, it is. Oh well, very cool. How about uh, how about on your side, Mo? Um, there's a lot of tax benefits, like uh, Mike alluded to. Um, is it the same thing with a MIC? It just flows right through and, and away you go. Is there other types of, I don't know what call arbitrage, but something there that, that's special with MICs? Um, 
the tax benefits are actually quite straightforward in the sense the MIC has a flow through. Everything has to flow through the investors. Uh, we mm-hmm. are eligible to take all forms of registered funds. So it flows up in them and uh, they are able to you know, exercise based on their tax brackets. So the benefits are there from that. How about you, Mike? How easy was it to get on these uh, IROC platforms? I mean, there's the big five banks. There's other independent shops that are fairly big and have uh, they're fairly sophisticated, have large, larger platforms, pretty open architecture. Um, how, how was that process to get on the, the IROC dealer channels? Well, that, I mean, you could have a series of podcasts just dealing with that, James. I, mean, yeah, I think we will. <laughs> that, is, that, is a real, that is a real challenge. So, um, I mean, to answer your question then, uh, you look at some of the largest distribution channels like uh, CIBC with Gundy, RBCDS, BMO, private client. There is zero product like this that's allowed on their shelf. Um, RBCDS was my largest client 10 years ago until they unilaterally changed the rules and mm. unceremoniously kicked us all off the shelf. <laughs> okay. So this is, this is a huge challenge with small funds or or, or private mm-hmm. funds like these getting on these distribution shelves. So, but the rules are at least clear now. And if you can meet the tests and the requirements that do continue to change, then you can get access to the IROC channels. Um, it's probably easier getting access to family offices um, than it is an IROC channel, but these are all different processes and they, and they, they all vary. Yeah, we could probably have a whole session on even just the family office side because we have quite a few calls between members uh, with our marketing and sales group to talk about distribution. And and for some, the family office side is a kind of a panacea. Like some love multifamily because you talk to one and then you can get maybe 100 trades out of it. And that others like the single family because they don't have as much of it's, – it's not like going through a product platform like you would at the IROC or uh, like the, at the IROC dealers, which some of the, the multifamilies are. Um, do, you, do you talk to, or how have you found the family office uh, environment? I mean, I love dealing with the family offices because you're dealing with decision makers and you're dealing with people that have bought and sold private equity in the past. And the sales cycle is much shorter because quite simply, they know what questions to ask, right? So that's, that. in my view, that's the single biggest difference in dealing mm-hmm. with family offices. They don't like it. They say no, and you know where you stand, you move on. Uh, so that's, that's always advantageous. Sometimes the family offices are busy with other things other than just talking to people promoting their products, I find as well. So that's, that's the other challenge yeah. of it is is trying to get their time but in fairness that's that's what i would say the advantages of family offices are you you know where you stand so yeah given your experience with that what are the questions that investors or or product folks should ask or what sort of questions should they be asking to to you and to mo on on uh, your products to kind of differentiate between one that's going to work for their their families or not i mean i guess there's different different strokes for different folks as well um well, right. What do you typically hear in your, your diligence talks? The number one question, if somebody's trying to assess risk, is it's still managerial operational risk. I mean, that is just that is still the biggest consuming risk. I mean, you've mm-hmm. got a mortgage that you underwrite. You're going to say it's the building's worth X because that's what you determine it to be, and and you're you're basically going to have that priced in your fund, and and you're going to say everything is fine. And, and it's really, you know, there's risks involved in terms of people 
really knowing what everything is worth if it's not on a major exchange being traded. And so then there's there can be all kinds of conflict of interests in terms of who's getting paid fees, placement fees of a mortgage versus the interest that goes to the investor mm-hmm. in the fund. So, uh, yeah, James, but I would say that that really uh, the questions to ask uh, really pertain to to the manager and, and and not to go on here, but really quickly, I'd say that whether it's a U.S. mortgage reader, whether it's a, a MIC up here in Canada, there's four yeah. basic risks, manager and operational risk, real estate risk, reinvestment risk, and liquidity risk, which I might add is a pretty pretty big one in these days with the COVID-19 situation. Cool. Wow. And then um, Mike brought up liquidity. So yours is pretty short term, like one or maybe two years. Um, how, is it, how has it been? Like, do you, and what, what terms say maybe do you have in the subreds in the fund? Can people buy and sell monthly or is it a locked-in structure? And then how does that affect the, uh, how has that been affected by this? So with the with the fund, the term is usually borrowers are usually borrowing funds from us from one to two years maximum, and uh, depending on the way they perform, if they are uh, if the payments are up to date, then we're able to extend that to them. Uh, so that's number one. Secondly, the key thing with the liquidity is uh, it's it's a problem every mix has. Some mix have halted redemptions in Canada overall we haven't uh we are able to cover uh the key thing is paying dividends out and we pay quarterly dividends so we had paid all our investors a little bit less than uh, their last quarter and uh they were okay with it because the main concern is to make sure that their principal is preserved and protected so they understand mm-hmm. that uh so from that point of view and uh so we haven't had any redemption calls or any halts or anything like that uh, so we're good on that front at the moment. Uh, but let's see how the market adjusts in four to five months, depending on when it opens up. And we may have some calls as we're hearing from the other larger institutions right now. And Mike, how about yours? How, how, how are your subreds set up on your uh, funds? Like how, how, how easily can people invest in and then get their money out later on? Sure. So we have a redemption policy which matches the underlying fund in the States, which is uh, 90 days written notice. And uh, I mean, liquidity is a really uh, key factor for many people listening. And, mm-hmm. you know, at the end of the day, and Mo, I think you'd agree with this. At the end of the day, liquidity might only come because you had to exercise your collateral, take the property back, list the property for sale, sell it, get the proceeds, and then pay somebody their money back. Correct. That's correct. Yeah. And, and let's agree that in unusual circumstances like this, you could have uh, a long liquidity period at a time when maybe everybody's coming to the fund for liquidity. And so nobody would have it, frankly, right? Because that's, that's the way that works. If every, if you, an underlying mm-hmm. private mortgage is not liquid. So at 90 days notice for us, what we're trying to do is have a higher bar to protect all the, the unit holders. And I might add 60 days sounds rather reasonable for a, a MIC lending in Toronto on houses as well. And when you compare that to the industry that has 30-day liquidity in many big funds and the mm. underlying assets are land, development, and early construction, I would contend there's a bit of a mismatch there compared to 60 days on a MIC or 90 days on our very short-term existing building uh, commercial loans. Yeah, I always think that if you have an illiquid 
asset in a liquid structure, um, you're kind of fooling yourself if, if you or your advisor don't say, hey, by the way, it's probably going to gate sometime in the next seven to 10 years because uh, things like this will happen. And then, I mean, everything, I, I understand the Fidelity Fund back in 87 gated as well because the equity markets were in a free fall. And they just said, well, it's a mutual fund, but no one ever said you can get your money absolutely every day. So, um, and especially with these kind of longer dated assets. Well, I, I think securities regulators would suggest you would if it's a mutual fund, wouldn't they? <laughs> I, I, anyway. Yeah. Um, hey, well, you got to protect the investors as well. Yeah. So you get a lot of stuff yeah. down there. Mo, I've got a question for you then as it pertains to liquidity. Do you guys use much leverage in your fund? No, we have zero leverage in the fund at the moment. Yeah. Likewise as well. So I think any investor still looking at the risk and liquidity, it is amplified and multiplied if somebody's using leverage. And I might add, loan sharing, selling senior participation or any participation in a mortgage, that's all leverage. And that, you know, if, if a fund gets jammed up, that just slows up any ability to to have your redemptions met. So those things really matter. Correct. Correct. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we, we hear a lot about, especially in the institutional world, about covenant light and all that kind of stuff. And then things were really getting kind of loose toward the end. And it was, it was like the old... Um, uh, his last name is Prince. The guy who ran Citibank, but just before everything blew up, said, "Well, you gotta, you know, in the great financial crisis, you gotta while the music's playing, you gotta keep dancing." And it seemed like people have been doing that for about two or three years before uh, before the COVID crisis came in and, and put a stop to a lot of stuff. Um, what were you seeing uh, in in the the underlying loans or the the properties and the loan to value that kind of stuff? Um, of the of your portfolios in the last like year or so year or two and then do you think that's going to snap back like a like an elastic as we as we come back out of this or what kind of what's your prognosis for the next six to 12 months um overall uh stress test honestly in 2017 the canadian government had cmhc and they all came up with the stress test and mm -hmm. that had a huge impact on major cities and uh, what we saw is a slowdown of about whether whether it's mortgages or the banks writing loans over the course of two years about 10% of their books and uh, almost 8 to 10% reduction in certain values and then gradually gradually certain sectors were starting to come back up into it uh, and we believe that the loans to properties now, the banks are scaling back as well. And uh, in the private sector, all the private guys have scaled back quite a bit. Uh, they're they're only, only lending up to 65, 70% of the asset at the moment, mm -hmm. where three years ago, you could write up to 90% or 85%, you'd have lenders. So where do we see the future? I believe in the single family home, definitely it has adjusted at the moment, but over the next year to two, as more people work out of home and, and home offices and so on and so forth, they're going to spend more money over there. And I feel that the single family homes will start rising again more over the course of the next two, three years. Mm. How about on your side, Mike? And I guess your, your funds are in the States a lot or exclusively, I guess. So what's the view from the uh, south of the 49? So it's a tough environment right now uh, to be in the private lending space uh, in the U.S. I'm not sure it'd be that much different in Canada, but it all depends on the asset, right? I mean, it's, mm -hmm. real estate is still local and and uh, the houses that Mo is lending on would be materially different in how they might act than might um, 
a multi-unit residential building in uh, in Huntington Beach, California. So, um, but to, to answer your question, maybe get to the to the the point on all this. So, uh, you know, at the end of the day, whether it's most fun or our fund, U-Shift, Ultra Short High Income Fund, you still, you're relying on traditional conventional exits because there's no business model that makes sense, James, for somebody to borrow your money long-term. Mm-hmm. So that's one or two years in Mo's example, and that's uh, typically 12 months or less in our example. Mm-hmm. And so if there's not much commercial real estate activity taking place, and in Canada, home sales in Toronto apparently have gone down a lot from a year ago, Mm-hmm. So that's a that's a traditional exit by which you might get your money back. Or if conventional lenders aren't lending on commercial properties, I can't speak to real estate in Toronto like Mo can about the houses. But uh, you know, that's largely it's opened up, it's still moving, but it was basically ground to a halt a month ago. So if you don't have standard traditional exits, then you better be prepared to own your assets. So in terms of <laughs> of, of you know, and that's and that's the reality of it. So in terms of the COVID nineteen, it's. It's significant. There's a lot of people not paying. We're fortunate that that we're half apartments and we're not really into retail in a big way and other things, and we don't have leverage. So that's that's all great and we'll be fine. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's a tough environment. I think long term, if you look at it, James, uh, the the kind of risk you had ten years ago in a MIC or even a a U.S. fund ten years ago, those yields have all come down. This space has come down largely with the supply of money. So with the more and more mix and the more and more mortgage funds, mine or otherwise, coming in and just supplying all this money and these non-traditional investments becoming a little bit more mainstream and certainly more used at the institutional level, there's just been a ton of supply come in. That's just pushed down yields generally. And if a, if a mortgage fund has the same yield over the last six, seven, eight, three years, I, I use six, seven, eight, but it could be three years, uh, it's because you're adding more risk uh, that's the only way you'd be maintaining the same yield you had three, four, five, eight, ten years ago. Wow, I I agree that with Michael totally because typically mix again are private sources. So uh, this certain rise has been due to the twenty seventeen onwards, and if you look at it, that's where you know even CMHC was up to six hundred billion prior to that, and uh, they had to bring that down to close to four hundred fifty billion. And, and and all that weight had shifted to the private side. That's where mix a few mix came into business. A few mix started raising their capital, and uh, a lot of builders and a lot of people that have built all these properties and clients could not get access to capital from their banks ended up turning to these mix and and and, and getting access to private funds. But now that has all leveled off. But still, there's another surge coming in in terms of. When all in the next six months, when all these clients have deferred their uh, payments and they want to go back and refi and they can't prove the employment, where is all that going? That's going to go back to mm. another private sector. And uh, but yet, you're correct in terms of the the you know returns have uh, come down significantly because there's access to funds and the competition has grown up as well in this area. I believe as the banks are going to be more stricter moving forward. Uh, this space is here to stay. Uh, liquidity is definitely a concern, but again, as you sell the asset, uh, you, you, you know, you gain that liquid, uh, but definitely this place is here to stay in the, in, in the mix space. Mo, would you agree too, that 
you know, this is a pretty big shock and this will take out some of your competitors. There's competitors that are doing, let's say, more second mortgages or using leverage. Or in my case, there's competitors that have lent on hospitality or land development, construction. Cool, so yeah. these are these are the kinds of lenders that will disappear. The banks, as you say, Mo, they tend to pull back a bit during these times. But the benefit to investors is that there are greater deal flow and, and better deals that can get exposed then. Uh, just because the supply of money is is tightening up. I totally agree with that. I believe, that, you know, what happens is that a lot of MIC managers that are sitting in the billion-dollar range, they, they put multi-properties and all that into one residential space. But truly, it's not. I mean, it's an apartment building. Yes, there's tenants in there, I believe. But that's a commercial asset that the MIC or the REIT is lending against. So it's a commercial asset. So if you look at the space, just single family homes, and, and if a MIC is only 100% operating that space, they are, I believe, going to be in a better position. Now, if they're on a larger scale and they were lending at 80 85% uh, prior to COVID, again, they're at the moment putting away fires, which is another challenge. So do we still like this space? That's the key, right? I mean, I think that's the question. I believe with the government and that stress test here, this is still the space, but as investors, you have to look at it and see, okay, I'm investing into a make that just strictly does residential, single family homes. Uh, they don't have retail, commercial, a lot of that you know, exposure that might take an adjustment at the moment, as you may agree to. Like, I mean, how do you feel the commercial spaces are going to do downtown Toronto? Well, they were, they were doing pretty tough in 1990 when I got into real estate because they were all vacant by about 20%. And, uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> these, are the, these are the cycles that can take place, right? If you go back to 1990, uh, it took out 150-year-old insurance companies. The one I worked with was pushed into the hands of another insurance company. So real estate can have long cycles, not that we would know that in Toronto because it's gone straight up for the last 18 years. But uh, and, and by the way, I have no prediction. I never have, never will on which way real estate is going. It's just too big of a wily marketplace. And I've got, I've got no idea. Um, but it, but it, you know, it, it's still, it's a big part of a lot of people's uh, portfolios. Uh, Mo and I are on the debt side and there's, and there's advantages to that. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, you know, when I, when I look at the Canadian and the U S marketplace, cause I worked in both and I, I first got a, a Mick approved at, Scotia Bank, I think back in 2009. Um, so there's specific advantages in the US in some states to lend, and that is because they're non judicial. And that means you can foreclose outside the courthouse and you foreclose on the courthouse steps. So that, that process can be hugely advantageous for having a short leash and getting the asset back. Oh, yeah. um, and, and in Canada, there's something. Yeah, in Canada, there's something called the Interest Rate Act, um, and and uh, one of the banks went to Supreme Court and lost. You you cannot charge extra punitive rates of interest, be it uh, the equivalent of fees and extra charges that then uh, basically add up to extra fees and charges as interest would be, if I'm describing that correctly. But in the mm -hmm. States, you're totally allowed to charge punitive rates of interest in the case of defaults. And so you could have the same pool of assets on both sides of the border but they could actually act quite differently depending on the laws surrounding them. And in Canada, the MIC that Mo has here in Ontario benefits huge from the abilities to act in your collateral compared to Saskatchewan. 
uh, where if you're going to sue for power of sale, that might take you literally 16 or 17 months. Well, wouldn't that be a disaster for you here in Ontario? Okay, I don't think I'd be running a MIC then. <laughs> 16, 17 months to collect is, is, is definitely tough. Hence, we are GTA only and, and you know, we, we like the sector. Back to the question about the real estate. Honestly, Canadian market has been a... This is a question I ask many bankers and, and CMHC, and they're still trying to do readings and studies on this, is how much of foreign money do we have in the Canadian real estate? And, and, and there, mm. there's no real answer to it uh, other than speculating. And, and in my speculation, we think about 30% to 35% of Canadian real estate is purchased, especially high-rise condos or any development is, is to international funding. And now with the immigration and all the growth, I believe that's why the Toronto sector, back to your, you know, what Michael is saying, is keeping its value is this, is when they want to come in, they want to either go to Toronto, Vancouver, uh, Montreal, Ottawa, and, and these are the places they want to stay. Uh, so as long as immigration stays stronger, I believe that the real estate will, will, will stay at par and, and then kind of continue with that. Oh, on the institutional side, like it's, uh, yeah, of course, Canada's been a destination for immigration for hundreds of years. Um, but uh, you have big pension plans that come in and buy, buy buildings as well. Is that fairly um, fairly common in, in GTA or, or Canada general? Like, I think we have some fairly iconic buildings downtown, but most of them are owned by, I guess, the, the Canadian pension plans. And do you see any the the, uh, the foreign institutional investors coming into into your markets and how do you think that that's uh, that's affected them in our market on I, I we don't see a lot of uh outside uh interest into the larger spaces what we noticed is the interest into the single family homes or smaller commercial units uh the larger ones i'm not uh, quite sure uh commercial space that uh, any international people are involved in to be honest well, maybe we could take that to Mike on the U.S. side. Um, what, what have you have you seen that down there? Or has it mostly been local buyers from uh, uh, for the local market? Oh, there's been some interesting uh, experiments in the states uh, with some very large private equity firms, um, you mm. know, buying thousands of houses in a portfolio. So it's it's interesting to see how all that's going to play out because I, I don't know that that's really been done before, and this is all stemming from the the credit crisis. So it's not brand new, but the, the mm -hmm. long term, the long term ability to manage a pool of 20,000 houses, I, I still think is an interesting concept to see how it all plays out. But yeah. they're, they're, they seem to be figuring it out. So. Um, so, yeah, I mean, REITs, public or private um, on both sides of the borders, the pension plans. I mean, there's been a huge amount of money going to real estate. And I and, I, and you know, so there. I think everybody knows that that's in real estate that even in Canada, I think if you go to all the major cities and look at the major intersections within those cities, I mean, I mean, they're all, they're all kind of owned by big institutions in a large extent. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and so, but I mean, we're, our average loan is five and a half million. Mo, what's your average loan? I'm guessing on a, you know, so we're not really dealing on institutional stuff that way. Right, Mo? Correct. Mm -hmm. Correct. Correct. We were, we're, we're, our average loan is about quarter million dollars on the smallest scale of things, right? Because it's single family homes we're into. And, uh, and that's an advantage. That's, that's a real advantage because you can have real inefficiency. So if we're in the lower middle market area of less than 6 million, 
um, you get up to a $20 million loan, you're going to get the attention of players on Wall Street. You stay below that. Mm-hmm. You're just you're just not because, frankly, it takes about the same amount of effort to underwrite a uh, an $8 million loan on apartment buildings as it does uh, a $25 million loan. So so there can there can be more inefficiencies. And if your average investment size for Mo is a quarter of a million dollars, uh, then then, you know, there's like who's playing in that space except for for people like Mo and, and high net worth investors. It's a smaller ticket to write, but a lot of people don't want to play in that space. They did rather play in the larger spaces. But again, uh, you know, it's it's as preference choice. <laughs> How about your side, Mo, going forward? And you said you do you're doing first and seconds. Has do you think that has will change going forward? Because I guess the stuff that you underwrote back in February is going to be on there for a year or so. Um, are you doing any more seconds now that we're into the the COVID times where people might be you know, losing their jobs and that kind of stuff too, or is it, uh, are, are there still good opportunities there? And how do you, how do you cherry pick those? To be honest, I think there's great opportunities right now into the opportunity, uh, into the residential side of things, single family. Um, are we still doing second? Yes. We have scaled back though, all our first and seconds up to 65 maximum, possibly up to 70. So you, you do reduce a lot of risks, Right, Mo, by having that high turnover in your portfolio, short-term mortgages, you're reflecting current real estate values. Uh, you're you're not lending on uh, on real estate prices a year ago. You're, as you say, you're currently underwriting today and reflecting today's lower or more you know cautious environment. So that's that's the same as our fund. I mean, that's that's the advantage of short-term is you're reflecting the current market conditions. Correct. Absolutely. Yes. Oh, it's been great, guys. Well, this has been like a a bit of a, an education into the real estate markets in Canada, U.S., the lending, uh, and then specifically, like I say, Mike, with your areas into the U.S. commercial, and then Mo focusing on the single-family homes in, in Canada. Um, I think, yeah, we probably should do a, a series of podcasts, and we have webinars as well on uh, getting onto the dealer platform because that's, uh, that's a bit of an undertaking in itself. But uh, we definitely look forward to having both of you on another uh, podcast again sometime soon. So thanks a lot, guys. Well, thanks for uh, thanks for having me, Mo. Pleasure uh, doing the call with you, and good luck in your fun. Thank you so much, uh, Michael. Thank you, James. Thank you for the call. Appreciate it.